What do you think about when you're trying to describe peace? How would you describe peace? I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but once a wealthy king did, he commissioned one of the artists in his kingdom, the most skilled artist that he could find, to paint a portrait of peace. And of course, this was uh, no small task, and the artist spent several days working on it, even weeks. And finally, he had the portrait completed, the painting finished. He brought it before the king, and he had a cloth draped across it and was about to unveil it. The king, of course, was sitting on the edge of his seat to see what peace looks like. And when the artist took away the cloth, he had painted a storm at sea, dark clouds, thunder, lightning. You could tell that it was a storm. And right in the middle of the painting, there was a small island, and on the island there was one tree. And the tree was bent over with the wind, showing that the wind was fierce. And then in the uppermost branches of the tree, there was a small bird sitting on a nest, and the bird was fast asleep. That is the artist's rendition of what peace looks like. Uh, you could probably fill in the blanks yourself. Whenever I asked you to picture what peace looks like, perhaps you thought of a, you know, a, a beautiful beach sand somewhere with white sand and a deep blue water. Um, perhaps you thought of your back porch looking at the sunrise or the sunset. But regardless, I think when we think of peace, regardless of what you pictured, our picture is far too small. Because true peace I think one of the best portraits of true peace is painted for us in what is probably the most familiar psalm in all of Scripture, and that is Psalms 23. So we're going to read it this evening and look at the price of peace and exactly how the Bible defines peace for us. Psalms 23, we'll read the entire psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, on this night when we remember your sacrifice, your passion, your death and dying on the cross, we know that it was the suffering of you, our Savior, that enables us to call God our Father. And Father, as we look to you and as we remember that night when you allowed your Son to bear our judgment, the judgment that we so justly deserve so that we might be adopted as your sons, that we might be adopted and have true peace, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would illuminate our hearts, our minds, our understanding with your word that we could appreciate that peace, and the price of it. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So 
What is the price of peace? In the ancient world, in the Hebrew mindset, peace was much more than an emotional sentiment. It was much more than the absence of conflict or the absence of turmoil. Even today, the Hebrew concept of shalom is something that is not simply sentimental. It's not simply emotional. It is all-encompassing. It addresses every aspect of who we are, of our day-to-day life, our day-to-day existence. And so there are three things in particular that we can uh, learn from Psalms 23, several things, but three things that I'd like to hone our attention in uh, on this evening. The first is the shepherd's provision. The psalmist begins by addressing the Lord as our shepherd and then by enumerating a list of ten things that characterize what God's provision, what the shepherd's provision are in the day-to-day life of, of David and also in our lives as well. Secondly, uh, we will look at the shepherd's presence and then finally we'll look at the shepherd's price. But first, the shepherd's provision. So those of you who are familiar with the 23rd Psalm, you know that David is its author. I mean, you might know also that David, prior to being king in Judah, king of all Israel, was a shepherd boy. He tended the flocks of his father. He was very familiar with the agrarian lifestyle, with the lifestyle of a shepherd, someone who had to look out for his sheep. And so he paints this beautiful portrait of peace, ultimately peace between God and man here in Psalms 23. And he does so in a way that I must confess when I read it, uh, regardless of how many times I've, I've heard it or regardless of how many times I read it myself, I am overwhelmed with uh, just the, the ways that um, peace between God and man and peace between the shepherd, the good shepherd and his sheep uh, are identified. But let me just briefly talk about each one. There are 10 things here that uh, David talks about in Psalms 23, 10 ways that God, the good shepherd, provides for his sheep. The first is there in the first verse of Psalms 23, and is, it is a lack of want. David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Lack of want is to need nothing. This is the first thing that God provides for his people. He provides whatever we have need of. He provides for us in an all-sufficient manner. The second thing that we see that the shepherd provides is satisfaction. The psalmist describes this deep satisfaction in a way that only a true shepherd can understand. He says that sheep, uh, the, that the shepherd causes his sheep to lie down in green Pastures. Now, according to Philip Yancey, and I must confess that I'm not a shepherd, nor have I really spent much time with sheep, uh, but other men have. And according to Philip Yancey, who wrote a commentary on the 23rd Psalm, he says that uh, sheep are some of the most anxious animals in the, in the domesticated world. They're very anxious, they're very nervous, they have a nervous tendency. And for a sheep to lie down, uh, certain requirements must be met. First, their hunger has to be satiated. They can't be overwhelmed with hunger. They have to be uh, satisfied. Uh, Second, they cannot be molested by insects. And insects, even back then, were a known problem with livestock. And third, they have to feel perfectly safe and secure. And so the image that David paints here is not necessarily of a sheep that has uh, plenty to eat and is enjoying the green pastures. That's part of it. But the real image that he's painting is that the sheep lies down in green pastures. He's not simply feeding, but rather he is satisfied. 
He is laying down in these green pastures. God has provided as the shepherd for all of his needs. The third thing that we see here in the shepherd's provision is nurture. Now, there are many ways that we can define nurture, physically, spiritually, emotionally, and so on. But the way that David chose to display it is of a sheep being led beside still waters. Still waters are a sign of peace, but they're also a sign of depth. Waters that are still are waters that run deep. And so David says, you, have, you lead me beside still waters. The fourth thing that we see here is restoration. He says, he, the good shepherd, restores my soul. This restoration is more than just physical. It's spiritual. It's emotional. It's mental. It's intellectual. It's, uh, it is uh, in every way. It's all-encompassing. It is cosmic in its scope. And David alludes to it as a provision that the shepherd gives. Next, he says righteousness. We know from Scripture that God is a holy God and that we are sinners. And there's a stark contrast between God's holiness and our wretchedness. And that is revealed to us more and more as we see the cross and as we see the suffering of our Savior and the penalty of our sin and the grievousness of it. But God's righteousness is something that first and foremost, he causes to be assigned to us. The righteousness of Christ, he causes to be assigned to us. But also, he enables us by his grace to walk in the path of righteousness. Why? Well, David says at the end of verse 3, for his name's sake. Now, there's a stark difference between the last three verses of Psalms 23 and the first three verses. In the first three verses, David really uses the analogy of a sheep and a shepherd. Uh, he sees himself as a sheep. He refers to himself as a sheep. But in the last three verses, really starting with the end of verse 3, he begins to once again address himself as a man. And he sees his peace, the peace that is provided by the shepherd, as being the peace that is between God and man. And so at the very end of verse 3, when he says he leads me in the past, of righteousness, he's departing from that agrarian analogy some, to some extent of a shepherd and a sheep to once again claim his uh, role as a human being, that Christ, that God, the good shepherd leads him in the path of righteousness. Next, David says that one thing the shepherd provides is lack of fear. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So this lack of fear is a provision by the good shepherd. Why? Why will David fear no evil? Well, because of God's presence. He says, you are with me. That definitive statement right in the middle of verse 4 gives David the confidence to say, I will fear nothing because God is with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod of a shepherd was his symbol, his, his social status. It it, uh, it characterized him as the lowly role of a shepherd. His staff was something that he used both to guide, to nudge the sheep, as well as to keep them from straying. And so David is referencing both here. He's saying that God's presence in his life, both his corrective disciplinary presence as well as his enabling grace, is reason for comfort. Next, David says that God gives him peace. 
He makes this statement in a way that is easily lost on you and I because we are far removed, thank God, from warring tribes and warring nations. But if you read the text where David says in verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. In the Hebrew, the, the word that is there translated in the presence of can also mean across from or over against. And so the analogy that is painted, and it's easy to miss it on first blush, is of a uh, victorious king who sits down with his enemies once he has conquered them and he is being reconciled through this, this meal. In the ancient Near East, much like today in the Middle East, if to share a meal with someone had great significance. It sealed their reconciliation. And so David here says that God has made him a table in the presence of his enemies, that he has caused him to be reconciled, he has caused him to be triumphant. But then he goes on to point out the fact that even though God has enabled him to be triumphant over his enemies, really he's nothing more than a mercenary. And this point is made clear by the next reference here in verse 5 where David says, You anoint my head with oil. In those days when kings would sit at the table, no king's head would be anointed with oil, only the heads of the guests. And so for David to say, you anoint my head with oil, he was, he was acknowledging that it is God who is the true king. Not only is he the shepherd, but he's also the king. And it is he and he alone that wins the battle over David's enemies. And so he is invited, if you will, and this is the beauty of this verse here in verse 5. He is invited to the banqueting table of God. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because Christ himself said something very similar when he broke bread with his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. And he gave them the cup and said, drink this. This is my blood which is shed for you. The table of the Lord, the table of the victorious Christ who died and whose death we remember tonight on Good Friday. That victory is ultimately a victory which is accomplished by God, the good shepherd, God, the great king, God, the one who reigns and who shall reign forever and ever. So in verse 5, David is acknowledging that the victory belongs to God and the banquet is God's. He has simply been given a seat at the table. And then finally, the tenth thing that we see here in the 23rd Psalm that is provided by the Good Shepherd is a full cup. Again, the theme of a victorious banquet and merriment taking place. The shepherd has caused his cup to overflow. God is victorious not only over David's enemies, but also over his own enemies, over all enemies. And it's a foreshadowing of the marriage supper of the Lamb that is mentioned in Revelation 19. So these ten characteristics, these ten features, characterize the provision of the shepherd of Israel for his people. But then David really circles back around at the end of the psalm, and he hones in on the next point that I want to make, which is the shepherd's presence. So first, David gives us this beautiful rendition, this beautiful painting, if you will, this beautiful portrait of the shepherd's provision. And then he really gets to the heart of the issue when he says that it's the shepherd's presence that makes the most difference. We, he alluded to this earlier whenever he said that you are with me and therefore I will fear no evil in verse 4. But then in verse 6, he comes back around and here it's not so much God's provision that he's focusing on. It's not the provision of the shepherd, it's the presence of the shepherd that makes the difference in the life of this 
shepherd king. He says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It is the shepherd's presence that David ultimately desires. The focus is turned away from what the shepherd has to give, and it focuses on the shepherd himself. He goes, David goes to great lengths to poetically enunciate and to characterize peace between God and man in this entire psalm. But all these things, these benefits, these provisions, they are a true reflection of God's gracious intention for mankind since the beginning of creation. But more importantly, God's desire is that he would be among us, he would be our God, and that we would be his people. So when we think about Good Friday and we we are perhaps tempted to ask the question, what makes it good? Christ, the Son of God, suspended between heaven and earth, breathed his last, suffered and died on a cross. What could be good about that? Well, ultimately, because it is the only way that an estranged God and man could be reconciled. It is the only way that peace, not simply a pleasant emotion, but a comprehensive life experience, a comprehensive, all-encompassing state of being, could be known and experienced by the children of God. Now, if you're like me, you read the 23rd Psalm, and it creates within you a bit of longing. Because I believe everything that David describes in the Psalms to be true, but I must confess that my daily existence would argue otherwise. I am often overcome with yearning. When David says, I shall not want, I often find myself in a position of wanting many things. I am often afraid and run trembling from the shadows. The green pastures must be over the dell, across the next hill, and they seem to be elusive. I seem to be treading forward more often than not in the wrong direction. The shadows of death and even the shadows of lesser things, if I were to be quite honest, do frighten me. So what is our hope? What is my hope? If that's true, if I read the 23rd Psalm and I see the provision of the shepherd and I see that his presence is ultimately more to be desired than anything, and that is the reason that Christ became flesh and dwelt among us so that he might reconcile us to God, then what is my hope? What is our hope? Well, my hope is this, that the Prince of Peace, my shepherd, has paid the price for my peace. And that even though he may lead me and he will lead me beside the still waters, there are times in my life that he'll also lead me in the storm. Doesn't negate the fact that I'm his sheep and he's my shepherd. Doesn't change the reality that his peace is something that is all encompassing and all pervasive. Rather, it creates within me a longing for my, re- my redemption, the completion of redemption, when the redemption is complete and Christ makes all things new. And so when we read the 23rd Psalm, and I believe this would be true even in the life of David, if you look at his life, he's not, uh, there are many times in his life when he says the very opposite of what he says here in Psalms 23. Does that mean that he is lying or speaking out of both sides of his mouth? No, not at all. But it means rather that within him is a realization that to belong to the good shepherd 
is in and of itself enough. That as long as we acknowledge and have faith and confidence that we are his and he is ours, then we will be following him. So if Psalms 23 is a true biblical summary of peace, at what cost, at what price does this peace come? And this leads me to my third point, which is the shepherd's price. Psalms 23 is written against the backdrop of covenantal blessing. In other words, David not only is part of the covenant community of Israel, but he's also a mediator of the Davidic covenant. That not only did God promise Israel specific things as his covenant community, but David himself was taken from the sheepfold and God promised that God would always be with him and that he would build his house, he would make his name great, and he would use him uh, to ultimately bring redemption to the world. And so Psalms 23 is written against this backdrop of covenantal blessing. And because of this, it's probably one of the most loved psalms in all of the Bible. In fact, people who aren't even churchgoers will be able to tell you probably bits and pieces of the psalm, if not the psalm in its entirety. It's often read at people's funerals or when people are going through hard times. But what is overlooked, and this is what makes Friday, this is what makes today good, because what is overlooked is the price that must be paid when the covenant is broken. If Psalms 23 is a beautiful painting, a portrait of the peace that comes from a covenant between God and man, then that begs the question, at what cost can such peace be experienced? The price that must be paid. Ultimately, Good Friday is about that price. It's about the one who paid it. It's about the good shepherd himself. Psalms 23 is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit from the vantage point of the sheep, of David. But in John chapter 10, we hear the perspective of the shepherd himself. The sheep is silent and the shepherd speaks. And we hear when Christ declared, I am the good shepherd. Here, the Son of God, the one that David is referring to in Psalms 23, the Lord, the Yahweh of Israel, God incarnate, has become man and he is living among us, and he states, I am the good shepherd. And then he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. That's John chapter 10, verses 11, 14 through 15. So the Lord is our shepherd, and he has laid down his life. For us, in our place, Christ, our Savior, our shepherd, paid the price for God and man to be reconciled. And that's the reason that today is good, because the shepherd is good. Because of his suffering and death, everything that is described by David in Psalms 23 can be a reality in your life and in my life. Why? Why can it be a reality? Because we belong to him. That's how David ultimately begins his psalm. And it's how he concludes his psalm. I belong to the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And then he ends it by saying, I will dwell in his house forever. The place where God has chosen to place his name. And then Christ gives us these words of comfort 
Because all of us were, at least I, read Psalms 23 and I think, huh, what's wrong with me when my day-to-day life does not experience that type of jubilant peace? Well, Christ says this in John 10, 4 through 5. He says, when he, the good shepherd, has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Now, that's profound. It says more than what I have time to really talk about this evening. But Christ did not say they follow him for they see him walking. He says they follow him for they know his voice. Because it's a reality that there are times in our life that we bump up against things that are dark. We go through valleys where we cannot see the shepherd ahead of us. We cannot see Christ anywhere in the midst of the yuck. But we hear his voice. His voice in his word. His voice that calls us by name. And he assures us a stranger they will not follow. But they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. Again, I'm told the same thing about sheep, that sheep are not only anxious animals, but they're also very loyal animals. And once they become attached to their shepherd, they will follow him. They will follow his voice. They will follow his guidance, regardless of where he leads. And so as his sheep. As those who belong to the foe of the good shepherd, the one who paid the price for our peace, let us take confidence in this reality, in this fundamental truth, that he will lead us beside the still waters and he will lead us through the storm, but that we belong to him and he died for us. So when you can think of peace, particularly peace between God and man, what we should picture is not an absence of negative circumstances. What we should picture is what we are remembering and celebrating this evening, which is the Son of God suspended between heaven and earth, dying in our place so that we could belong to God. Because we know that's not the end of the story. We know that even though Friday is dark, that Sunday is coming. Let us pray. Our Father, even as we have spent time reflecting on Psalm 23, and even as we have considered the provision of the Good Shepherd and the presence of the shepherd that we long for in our lives, and even as we have seen the price that the shepherd paid so that we could have peace with God, Our hearts long for the completion of redemption. Our hearts long for the day when you will return, even as you promised to your disciples who stood there gazing up into the heavens. They were assured by the heavenly host, by the angels of the same Jesus that ascends, we shall see in like manner returning for us, his sheep. And so, Father, as we remember Good Friday, as we remember the darkness of that day when the sun hid its face and when the Son of God experienced judgment in our place, we pray that you would give us the comfort of the certainty that the Lord is our shepherd. And even though that today may be dark, that Sunday's coming, 
that hope is in you and you alone. That you have triumphed over death, hell, and the grave. And because you live, we can live also both physically and spiritually and in eternity. And so, Father, we rejoice in this. In Jesus' name, amen.